Good morning. Can everyone hear through the sound system? Is that coming through? Test. How's that? Good? All right. Got a lot of, a lot of wires this morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, so, if you weren't here last week, we're doing um, how to study the Bible, or hermeneutics, which is how to interpret the Bible. Um, so we'll be continuing on in that. Uh, thanks for filling in the near tables uh, to allow some space in the back as, as people just kind of roll in, and also um, just kind of filling up those spaces. Uh, the idea is that we would be able to engage with one another uh, at our tables, our neighbors, not just with the class as a whole. And so um, that's why we have this set up. So for anyone who wasn't here last week uh, for that kind of basic logistical intro, um, just filling you in. So this week, we'll do a quick review. So who can, who can help us out with, uh, with answering the first question? Who determines the meaning of a word, a passage, verse, etc.? What is it that we're, what we're looking for? What's our standard for interpretation? Yes, Chase? Author's intent. That's what Chase says. Anybody want to disagree? Anybody want to agree? We have one agreeer and some people who still need to refill their coffee. All right, how about the second question? The meaning of a word, phrase, sentence is best understood in light of the words, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, etc. around it. Uh, this is an explanation of the blank principle. We must remember that fill in the blank is key. Anybody remember those ideas from last week? Yes, Bennett? Context. Context, yes. The contextual principle or context is key. Good job. You guys have, have tested out. You have successfully passed week one uh, of how to study the Bible. All right, so last week, um, I, I was thinking about our class last week and some of the things that we covered. And um, we talked about these seven guiding principles, the second one, which we just mentioned, uh, the contextual principle. And I thought, you know what, I, I think I'd like to add something to that. These were all from the, the book that I gave away last week. Um, and I thought, you know what, I'd like to add something to that that I think would be helpful as we study our Bibles. And so we're going to amend this a little bit. And we're going to add the Christocentric principle and just the idea that um, all, of, all of God's Word, uh, at the center of it all, is His redemptive work in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so there are so many things that point to Jesus in his word. Um, before we get too much farther, is there any, any questions, comments, whatever from last week? I, I know last week we ran right up against time. Is there anything uh, that anybody wanted to ask or say as you thought about last week's material? Give us a, a minute or two for that. Yes, Sylvia. Handouts from last week. I think I actually just emptied them out of my bag at home this morning. But 
Oh, okay. All right, super. And there, it's really a whole bunch of blanks. So if the blanks are <laughs> unhelpful, uh, let me know, and I can either send you an outline or, or something like that. Yes, Kristen. Yeah, um, and actually I forgot to bring a copy of one of them uh, this morning to give away, so I'll have to give away two next week. But one of them is Inductive Bible Study. I believe the authors are Fur, F-U-H-R, and Kostenberger, uh, C-O-S-T-E-N-B-E-R-G-E-R. Uh, and the other one is... Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Interpreting the Bible, Playing by the Rules by Robert Stein. S-T-E-I-N. But I, I do have a couple more copies of those, and I will bring those next week uh, if, if anybody is interested in having a copy. But yeah, so the seven that we started with came from, from the Kostenberger book, and then uh, the eighth I'm just kind of tagging on to the end. Uh, as, as a helpful idea. Hopefully it's helpful. Anything else from last week? No. Okay. All right. So, um, so where, would we, where would we get the idea of, of there being a Christocentric principle? I mean, we kind of explained all the other ones, maybe gave some examples of those. Uh, but this idea of Christ-centeredness... Um, I mean, you really can find it all throughout the Bible. Uh, we see creation. We see man and woman made in God's image, uh, made in our image from, from God's uh, perspective, the triune God. Uh, Genesis 3.15, knowing that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Uh, so at the very beginning, you have pointers to the gospel, pointers to Jesus. At the very end, you hear... Uh, the Apostle John writing in Revelation about looking forward to uh, Christ's return. Uh, so you have these bookends that way. You have Luke 24 with Jesus talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, interpreting all things from Moses and the prophets about himself. Um, and I think also Colossians 1, 15 through 15-20, I'll just read that real quickly. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So just realizing that everything is for Jesus, from Jesus, through Jesus, to Jesus, he is at the center of it all. So I thought that this would be a helpful thing as we, as we learn to study our Bibles and just kind of keeping that in mind. And um, as you think maybe about either the Old Testament or the New Testament, what are well, the New Testament's probably even easier. But maybe in the Old Testament, maybe just take like two minutes around your tables and talk about some of the things in the Old Testament that point forward toward Jesus to kind of get some of this idea uh, going in your head and kind of get your, your minds wakened uh, before we get started too much. So two minutes, go ahead.
Maybe, maybe one or two things, maybe one thing uh, from each table. Uh, any, anything that you guys came up with that you want to share? I'll start over here. Why do you go sitting up front, guys? Right, prophet, priest, and king. Yep, and the the people who kind of exemplified those in the Old Testament. Good. How about here? Abraham and Sarah were promised a son. Abraham and Sarah being promised a son. Uh, yep. Over here. Justice and mercy, yep. Okay, in the middle. Uh, we talk about the Passover sacrifice. Yep. Good. Uh, over to my left going towards the back doors of the kitchen. Or Kevin and Bill. Yep. All the way in the back. The McManigal table. Yep. Uh, moving across the the back to the next table. Uh, 
I can't see where the tables are actually divided. I think the mine is right here. Okay. Uh, talked about uh, Melchizedek, uh, King of Salem. Yep. And that Christ, uh, his priesthood in Hebrews is after the order of Melchizedek, so it's forever, versus the Levitical priesthood that came to an end when Christ came. Good. Uh, coming forward to the table with the froms. Uh, we talked about some of the same things, but um, also Moses uh, and the bronze snake. Okay, yep. Good, and last table over here. Okay, and they were good answers too, so good job coming up with the good answers along with the rest of the tables, good. Uh, real quickly, uh, you should have a stack of handouts at your tables if you run out. Um, I think there are additional copies somewhere, so we can get you some of those. Also, there are postcards, or not postcards, index cards. Uh, those are just in case you have uh, a thought or a question that we don't have time to get to or you don't want to ask out loud and you just want to make a comment or a question, I can gather it up at the end and then possibly get to that in a future week or respond via email or, or whatever the case may be. So just some uh, kind of admin details there. All right, so uh, Christocentric principle and how so many things in, in God's word point to our Savior Jesus Christ. So this week, we'll be moving on to observation. Uh, re remembering again that last week we talked about like why we study and some general principles. And then uh, in this week and the weeks to come, we're going to be focusing on observation, interpretation, and then a little bit of application at the very end. All right, so some resources for observation. Uh, some of the things here... Uh, what we'll be getting to today, some hands-on tools, uh, asking questions of the text, and Bible translations, which were mentioned last week, uh, some significant terms and identifying those, identifying literary units within the Bible, uh, sort of parameters for a passage, and certainly we could cover more than this, but again, this is just a four-week uh, survey, overview, high-level kind of flyby. So we aren't going to dig into everything that we could or go as deep into everything as we could. So, um, and, and as we focus on observation this week, again, remember last week we talked about the idea of a spiral and how we gather more and more information and we get closer and closer, going deeper and deeper, narrowing in on the specific meaning of the text. And so... Observation, we're just kind of gathering a lot of that preliminary information to influence how we understand a particular verse or passage or word or whatever it is that we're looking at at the particular time. So some, some just sort of raw materials, hands-on tools. I mean, you're going to need a Bible, obviously, if you're going to study it. Uh, maybe you want to use highlighters. Maybe you want to use pens or pencils, colored pencils. This is going to sound like kindergarten, but you could even use crayons. Crayons are great for highlighting because they don't smear, they don't bleed through, 
they're dry, so using like light colors, that's, that's an option. Um, if you don't really know what it is that you're going to be marking in your Bible, you could make a photocopy or get something off the web and print that off. Um, that way you, you can just mark that up and, and make mistakes and then realize, oh, well, this isn't actually the main point, and so it's a good thing I highlighted this on a separate sheet of paper instead of in my, my copy of, of uh, the Bible that I would read on a daily basis or something. And then you have to look at that thing that you kind of scribbled out all the time. Because um, we're all fallible. I mean, even this process, it's, it's going to be some trial and error. Uh, maybe a notebook, maybe a bookmark where you have, uh, have marked down, okay, well, all the references to Jesus I'm putting in gold, and all the references to sin I'm putting in black, or something like that. And so as you kind of work your way through a book or a chapter or whatever, you can move this bookmark along and remember, oh, this is, this is what color I had this. And you're not like starting over and going back to the beginning of the book, especially if it's a longer book, and trying to remember what, what uh, kind of schemata you, you were using. And then um, one other thing that I'll, I'll just take a, a break from the, uh, the PowerPoint for just a section, sec- second is something called scripture mark if you're more digitally oriented um, and I'm sure there are other tools uh, that you could use as well but this is something I stumbled on a few weeks ago and basically you can you can have a free account and you can save your work and you're you're basically to able to like mark things right on here and uh, it, it lets you do all kinds of things. You can add notes, you can draw on it, you can say, oh, this reference is to this. Don't take this too seriously, I'm just scribbling on here, so I have no idea if any of these things relate to the things that I'm pointing to. I'm sure they do in some sense, but just don't take too much from what I'm doing. So scripture mark is something, and, and there are probably other tools like it uh, that you could, could explore. Anything... Uh, a- as, as you've read your Bibles, as you've uh, maybe done your own studying or something, is there anything that you would add to this list that you would want to recommend to one another? Yeah, Michael. I would commend a website called Knowable Word. Okay. Right. And um, you know, in our culture, that's really popular to get away from the every word inspired you know, scripture. But sure. the Lord argues that in Mark 12. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good point. And we'll kind of touch on that a little bit later as we talk about translations 
and the importance of each individual word. So a uh, good point there. And also the resource knowable word you said, right? Knowable. Okay. Yeah, Erica. I don't know. I can't remember what the next thing was, but I found that Blue Letter Bible is uh -huh. really helpful for like looking up, like you could have like a, like a Vines or um, a Strong's Concordance, but Blue Letter Bible is really helpful. And Bible Hub is really yeah. good for seeing like the interlinear translations. Yeah. So you can see like the exact, like what Michael's saying, like how each word matters. Like in Bible Hub, if you don't speak Greek, you can see like what it looks like in Greek. Sure. With the English. Right. So those were Blue Letter Bible, which actually uh, Scripture Mark is either linked to from Blue Letter Bible or it's something, a resource within Blue Letter Bible. And the other one was Bible Hub. And we'll, we'll probably look at some of those uh, next week when we get into interpretation. Some. Yes? Um, for our girls, our young girls, have you been using the ESV Illustrated Bible? Because it's kind of like a little bit printout. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah, that's a good idea. Good, good. So uh, all kinds of things that we can, that we can be using uh, as we study. So next thing we'll look at is asking good questions. And the idea here is that we can ask questions about the content, uh, the relationship, the intention, or the implication. And you can kind of see some definitions here. So the content being... Uh, questions dealing with the substance or significance of the text and relationship, uh, kind of probing the connections, the relationships that exist between the words and the phrases and the concepts in the passage, uh, the asking questions about intention, uh, trying to get to what it was that the author was intending and uh, what he wanted to communicate uh, to his reader and, and what that communicates to us as well. And then implication, uh, trying to assess what it, are the implications, the ramifications, the applications uh, of what the interpretation might be. So um, I was going to have us do kind of an exercise, but uh, in the interest of time, we'll just kind of do it together instead of at the tables. So uh, a common verse or a, a fairly well-known verse, Jeremiah 29:11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And this was said within a particular context, a certain author to a particular people. But if we read this, this is an opportunity for us to ask these kinds of questions. So uh, if, if you're reading this, what, what kind of question might you have? But you, maybe you get an answer to, maybe you don't, maybe it takes you a while to get to the answer. But what's the question that you might ask as, you, as you're maybe reading through Jeremiah or you're studying Jeremiah 29? Um, you see this verse, and what, what comes to mind? Yes, Courtney. Um, I was thinking about the 
Good question. Who is, who is the you? The plans are for someone. Who is that? Michael. Will God let me know the plan? Okay, sure. You read this verse, and what do you want to know? Yes, Pam. Why the four is there? Right. Right, right. What's the significance of the word four at the beginning? Yes, Erica. Uh, what is going on in the light, in the the life, or the the culture of whoever that you is? So, like, where in redemptive history is that you person? Right, right. What's going on in history, what's going on in redemptive history, for the, the recipients of this, of this uh, message, this letter from Jeremiah? Anything else? Yeah, Erica. I want to know what the word welfare means. Like, what, what does that mean in the right. Hebrew? What does not for evil mean in the Hebrew? What does future and ho- like these words that are like impacting the you? What did that mean in that time? Right, right, right. There are all these all these words, and what do they mean? Uh, is it the English has it has it very well captured, and we can understand exactly what it means just by reading it as it is, or is there something underlying that is kind of lost in translation as we go from Hebrew? To English. Yes? Why is Lord in all caps? Yes. Good, good question. Right. So there are all, I mean, the, the longer we stare at it, the more questions we could come up with. But this is good because it, it kind of gets us uh, thinking about the text and thinking about, okay, well, how many things about this do I not know? Uh, when it says the plans I have for you, well, this wasn't written... The messenger didn't take this from Jeremiah and hand it to me, uh, however many thousands of years later. So does, does this mean anything to me? Does this, does this have a significance, or is this just sort of a historical point-in-time kind of thing um, that, that only has relevance in that time, or, or does this uh, apply to me in any way at all or not? So all kinds of questions that we, could, uh, that we could come at this passage or any host of passages uh, with. And some of them, again, some of them you'll be able to answer quickly. Some of them you might not ever answer. But they, they can inform what we look into and uh, our, our study as we go. Some, some recommendations here. Uh, so your observations can fuel other questions. Um, you can ask the basic questions. Uh, we talked about some of these already. The who, what, why, where, how. Like, historically, who's writing this, who's receiving this, all those kinds of things. What's the message? Uh, Try to go deeper and more narrow as well, not just the the general ones. You can do some speculating. Like, if this is to these people, well, then would they have read this this way? And and that can inform some of your questions. Um, What you know of of God, what you know of the Bible already can inform your questions. you don't have to just, number six, you don't have to make up questions just so that you have questions. Uh, and you also, as I said earlier, you might not get your questions answered right away. Uh, but just some, some things to kind of think about uh, as you ask questions. All right. Uh, so last week when we talked about 
uh, where do we go if we need help understanding a passage? One of the things that was mentioned was Bible translations. Uh, I'd look up this verse or this passage or whatever in another translation, maybe that would help me out. And so that can definitely help us as we observe the text. And so um, that's going to be one of our resources for gathering more details and and observing uh, any particular verse or passage that we're looking at. So here's here's kind of a spectrum. Uh, The far left side, we have word for word. beginning with interlinear, so you're going to see like the Greek or the Hebrew there. And then at the far right, you have more of a thought for thought, um, ending with the message, which is more of a paraphrase. So what we're probably most used to is the NASB, the ESV. Those are down towards the word for word end. And then you have, I don't, even, I don't actually know what the CEV is. Maybe somebody does. But the New Living Translation, the Living, uh, living Bible those are down at the thought-for-thought thought end. And so, as, as Michael mentioned earlier, like there's certainly value in the word-for-word the word because we believe that, that God inspired, that the Spirit informed and carried uh, the writers of Scripture along with, with intentionality in each word. And so there's, there's certainly value in the word-for-word word end of the spectrum. And we probably generally stay away from the more thought, to, thought for thought, uh, but maybe we reference that from time to time. Is, is there any, any circumstance where you think thought for thought has value or a strength? Yes, Bennett. Well, when I was younger I, um, and just learning to read, my parents got me the um, children's version of the NIV tra- translation, okay. and it was more thought for thought. The words, okay. were, uh, the words were a lot simpler and mm-hmm. um, a, lot of, um, a lot of it, um, it did a lot of defining stuff um, as like part of the verses. It definitely was not a direct translation at all, but sure. I, um, it really was what got me into reading the Bible. And when previously, in previous Bibles I had owned or had access to, I, I remember my church used ESV one had like ESV one back in the pews, and I would okay. um, look at those, and it was very difficult for me to uh, for five, six, seven year old me sure. to read and comprehend. Right. Then this children's translation really um, helped me uh, helped me out. I read it quite quite a lot and used it for many years. Right. Uh, until I was old enough and where I could start. Uh, reading more advanced stuff and reading the regular ESV and NIV translations. Sure, sure. So readability and, and understandability at a younger age. That's, that's certainly a, an advantage of maybe, maybe more towards the thought-for-thought thought end. Yes, John. I think periodically it's, I have found, found it useful because whoever wrote the thought-for-thought thought understands that they're looking at the same words as I am maybe in like mm-hmm. an ESV or an NASB, but they interpret it a little differently and sometimes it's helpful for me to go, oh, that's another way. It sort of breaks me out of my preconceptions of, of what it means. Okay. Um, All right. Helping I mean, you. have to be obviously critical about whether their, whether their, their thoughts are ac- accurate or are valid for what, what the text is saying. Sure. Um, but I think it's been helpful. 
Right, so helping you see something that maybe you didn't see before, but you also bring up a good point, um, acknowledging the weakness, potentially, because they're doing some of the exegetical interpretive work for the reader, and so they, they have that kind of influence uh, if, if you just take their interpretation as correct. Yeah. Um, Tim, did you have your hand up? No? Okay, so I guess it was you, Joel. I wasn't sure if you both did or, or what. Go ahead, Joel. Right. Yep. Good, good points there. And last week when we talked about context, we talked about um, the definitions of words and, and their meanings coming from not just uh, the, the meaning itself. I mean, if, if I, I think I used the example, something like uh, John wanted a new bow to go hunting. And then someone, in another sentence you read, uh, Sally, um, Sally was going to bow before the king. And, and so you see the same B-O-W in the middle of both of those sentences, but you don't just go to a dictionary and say, oh, this is what that means regardless of what sentence it appears in. The, the sentence around it informs what definition we're actually working with for that particular word. So yeah, that's a good point. And also about the fact that even at the more the word-for-word end, there is some interpretation and some selection going on in that, in that translation as well. So something to think about there. Yeah, Erica. I was thinking, uh, like, later on in the process, we're going to find out about, like, checking, like, sanity checking uh, your interpretation because, like, you don't, if you come to the original intent, like, somebody else probably should have come to that original intent. But I think, like, the further away from where those, those translations are probably helpful because whoever wrote that translation went through this same process that you did and wrote something, like, they summarized it. So it's probably a good resource as more like a commentary or um, a summary, like to mm -hmm. check your interpretation against. Right. They would just be later, like early in the process of this studying your Bible, maybe not so helpful. Later, yes. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good, a good way to put it. Um, it's a helpful resource. It can be used as, as a sanity check perhaps uh, later in the process, maybe realizing that the farther left is more uh, more upstream, in, in a sense, from maybe what's off to the right in the thought for thought. Um, yeah, so some, some helpful things there. And uh, it, it can also, like, maybe in the thought for thought end might help for things that aren't literal, maybe figures of speech that we just aren't familiar with that can kind of cut through some of that, uh, that difference in language or time or whatever the case may be. I think I have an example here. Yeah, so here's a picture of what the woman in the Song of Solomon would look like if you took it all literally. Uh, that your, your hair is like a flock of goats, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep, uh, your temples are like a slice of pomegranates, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, 
which faces towards Damascus. So, I mean, like, I don't know what the Tower of Babylon or Tower of Lebanon looks like. So, I mean, what does that what does that mean to me? But I mean, maybe someone would help cut through some of that uh, figurative language uh, in in more of a thought for thought uh, translation. All right. So, if you were if you were going to look at just a, a bunch of translations to uh, see maybe how, how words might be understood differently in English, realizing again that this is just a 101 level. We're not expected to know Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic going into this. Um, can someone who has an ESV read Psalm 8.5? I'll have you read, Kenzie, in just a second after I find my marker. Okay. Go ahead, Kenzie. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly games and crowned him with glory and honor. All right, so you would fill in the blank there with heavenly beings. Anybody have an NASB? Yeah, Kevin. You read same same verse? Okay. Anybody have a, a King James or a New King James? New King James. Bob, will you read Psalm eight five? <clears throat> Thanks. All right, so. This is kind of interesting. I mean, reading these, these different versions, the same verse, uh, different words are selected. The, the word in the Hebrew is, I mean, the, the translator are working with the same word in Hebrew. It's Elohim. And, but they, they've chosen to, to um, render it different ways. Heavenly beings, God, angels, and so this might stand out as we read through this. You read it in one version, and then you say, okay, well, what does it say in another version? Oh, well, that's different. I mean, you could see some similarities uh, maybe between angels and heavenly beings. Maybe you'd see some, maybe if you're going to do a Venn diagram, you could see, okay, well, heavenly beings could include like God and angels, like the whole heavenly host, all, all that's in heaven. Um, God is certainly more exclusive than these other two. Angels is more particular than, than heavenly beings, and, and so on and so forth. And so, uh, just seeing that there exists these kinds of distinctions might help you see, oh, well, maybe I don't just read it in the English and say, oh, I got, got my answer, it's God, and just move on. Uh, but maybe look at some other things. Uh, we're just talking about the observation part right now, but um, I, I will note that uh, in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament that the New, New Testament writers would have often been looking at and referring to, uh, in that version, it, it says angels. And so when we read the author of Hebrews writing, he would be working from that. And he, he talks about Christ being made for a little while lower than the angels, uh, interpreting Psalm 8.5 as referring to Jesus. And so uh, that, that might be an argument for why you might choose angels here. Um, 
he also, it, it also is along the same lines as heavenly beings, but it's certainly a different, different take than choosing God as like the best translation of Elohim in that particular uh, verse. So just, just some thoughts there. Um, one other thing we'll look at as it pertains to this. Could someone with an ESV read 1 Samuel 17, 5 and 38? Okay, go ahead. Okay, so male is used for, for both of those terms. Anybody have an NASB that they could read both of those verses? Kevin? He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with steel armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. That was at 38. Yep. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. So in, in the ESV, it uses male both times. And then in the NASB, it uses the word was scales the, the, at the verse 5. And then in 38, it just says armor. It doesn't describe it, right? Okay. And so, well, what's going on here? Well, the interesting thing is, I mean, obviously, again, both translators are working with the same Hebrew words. But the words here... In verse 5, male versus scales is different than the word that's used in verse 38 that's translated as male or armor. And so if you're reading the ESV, you might just go through and be like, okay, well, they both have male armor on, no big deal. We're just describing what they're wearing. But in the NASB, you see that Goliath is covered with scales, and David's armor from Saul is just armor. and maybe some other versions might call it male armor or whatever the case may be. But the point is, is that these two words are different. And so uh, if we're thinking, we go back to the Christocentric principle and we see the difference uh, in these words and we see that when David's fighting, he's fighting against someone who's covered in scales. And so it helps us see the imagery of uh, Christ defeating the serpent, the dragon, the, uh, defeating Satan, crushing his head. That's, it's a picture. I mean, certainly David and Goliath are an actual event that happened, but the picture of Christ uh, winning the battle as the representative against the beast covered in scales is, is much more obvious when you see the different wording being used. So just uh, another example and, and something helpful that can come from different translations. And time is slipping away pretty quickly. But that's okay. We, we may end up bumping something the next week, and that wouldn't be the worst thing. But we'll see. All right, so benefits of translations a little bit there. All right, so uh, the next thing we'll look at is significant terms. Uh, the first one, we're just going to look at two. 
One is contextually critical terms. The other one is theologically profound terms. First, we'll do the, um, the contextually critical ones. So if you were going to summarize a passage or a chapter or a verse to someone, the contextually critical terms would be the ones that you would really have to understand, that you'd have to, uh, you would need in order to be able to summarize this to someone else. Like, you, you cannot get the context, you cannot get the, the understanding without these terms. Um, so, on your handouts, there's a, a big block quote. It's all of 1 Corinthians 8. And uh, just around your tables, take about five minutes um, to look through that and, and identify what the contextually critical terms are. If you had to explain 1 Corinthians 8 to someone else, what are the words that, that you would need to kind of understand to be able to give a summary? So I'll give you five minutes for that, and then we'll come back together on that item. Yeah. 
All right, so that's about five minutes, and if you didn't get through the whole thing, that's okay. And uh, certainly if you were doing this on your own, you'd have the opportunity and the time to probably read through it a number of times and see kind of the, the, the bigger picture and maybe some of the things that repeat and um, are included in this. But going through it in just a couple minutes here at your tables, what are some of the terms that you think you would just have to have if you were going to be able to summarize this chapter to somebody? Yep. Knowledge. Knowledge. That's repeated a number of times. Conscience. Idols, yep. No, that's okay. That's all right. Yeah, Jen. Weak 
Weak. Yep, that's in there a number of times. Uh, Pam? Defiled. Yep. Sorry, what was that? Stumbling. Yep. And so there, there might be a couple others in here, but these are probably the main ones, especially uh, food and the idols, the knowledge, conscience, weak, stumble. Um, the others in here are, are good too. Um, but some of these things, they probably jump out because they're repeated. And some of them, they just seem like so critical to being able to explain this or summarize this to someone that you, you just need to either understand or include these words. And so understanding what these terms mean um, is, is basically necessary. Uh, so in the interest of time, we're going to push the theologically profound terms and then the, the literary units piece to next week. It's not, it's not long, uh, but rather than just trying to cram it into two minutes, I think that that would be best. Any comments or questions about uh, anything we talked about today? All right, I'll, uh, I'll pray and then we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word and, and thank you that we have it so readily available and accessible. Thank you that we have it in our own language. God, I ask that you would equip us to know you better through it, that you would change us by it. And uh, in, in all things that your son would be glorified. Um, please uh, teach us um, as we hear it read and preached in the upcoming uh, worship service. And um, as we continue to think about it and learn from it, please grow us and to observe new things from it all the time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.